0: Amen. Be seated. You would turn in your Bibles this morning to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verses 22 through 30. And you'll notice that this week's text is actually the same as last week's, only shorter. It's the text within the text that we looked at last week. And what this means is that I still believe there's more to be said. About the new covenant that we have began talking about last time we spoke about the newness of the new covenant being christ himself jesus is the new thing that isn't that has come into creation and this week i'd like to urge you with the prophets to see this newness not just intellectually granting it as a fact but even experientially and seeing that it's way bigger than you might have recognized isaiah 43:19 says behold I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It will be my contention that we do often do not perceive this new thing that Isaiah, that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi and truly all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament have been trying to get us to see that we don't catch the vision like we should. I believe that we have disenchanted the newness of the new covenant by accepting things the way that they are. You know, we just kind of see the world as it is, and we say, well, it's always going to be this way. We have not challenged our situation to see if God might actually spring forth with surprising hope, as he says that he will. And he calls us to see it. So we'll begin back in Jeremiah and let the newness lead us through the prophets uh, to see it. More clearly, as I'm praying, it springs forth into our vision. We'll look at uh, Jeremiah, and we're also going to look uh, later at uh, Isaiah and see this new thing that God does. We're going to kind of follow the newness in Scripture and see where that leads us. So we're going to begin in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verses 22 through 30. Church, these are the words of God. As such, let's give attention to them. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on earth, a woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O holy habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm... So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Then it goes on to say what we were looking at last week. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. with The house of Israel and the house of Judah. The word of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, you've told us in your word that you are going to do a new thing. You call us through the prophets to ask if we perceive it. And Lord, we ask now that you would help us to perceive it. We pray that you would give us eyes that truly see and ears that truly hear. As Jesus went through his ministry, this is what he talked about often. giving sight to the blind, giving um, hearing to those who do not hear, giving healing to the sick. And Lord, there's a spiritual element to this that we all all praying for this morning, that you would show us something that we otherwise would not be able to see. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be given to us by the prophets and carried down through the ages so that we might hold them in our hands, that same Spirit that lives in us. I pray that the two would resonate because the two really are not two. They are one spirit. Unite us now to your word and help us to catch a clear vision for what you want for us individually and also corporately as a church as we sit at your feet today and behold the new thing that you are doing in Christ Jesus. We ask this all in his wonderful name. Amen. So here in Jeremiah 31 we see a major turning point prophesied in human history. I believe what Jeremiah speaks of is literally the tide turning from decreation to recreation when Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes, it is the time for all things to be made new. That's what Paul says. The restoration of all things, Malachi says. Being born again, John says. The new world is fertile for reconstruction. Jesus even refers to the regeneration or the new world that he's bringing. See how the tide begins to turn in verse 23 of our text, where it's shifting from decreation to recreation. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. So the Lord uh, the, the, the Lord prophesies through Jeremiah and calls them to Uh, Recall a blessed time. So they're looking back when things were better. So things have gone downhill, right? Things are not going well. A time when uh, they might say that their habitation was one of righteousness and holiness. That was where they're looking back to. He says they will say this again. It was not so in their day, though. This is not what the people in Jeremiah's day were experiencing. They were an exilic people. They were exiled. They were far from their country. They were not experiencing the blessing of God. They were far from blessed. But in light of the new thing that God does, this turns the tide to a recollection of this blessed time. So it went downhill and a recollection in the truest sense of the word is what I'm meaning this. A recollection of the peoples is in view. Where they're coming out from their exile back together as a unified people in a time of blessing. Okay, See verse 24 and 25. It says, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. So you get this image of people coming back together in unity and in blessing. Okay, Here you have unity and spiritual satisfaction leading to replenishment. That's the language that you use. The soul I will replenish. These are marks of new covenant ministry that we should be looking for. Okay? Unity among churches. A recollection of Catholicity where uh, we're together as a universal body. We are one church. We're rural pastors who wander with their flocks are close to the city churches who are out there with their flocks. And not just geographically, but spiritually, doctrinally, economically. They dwell together, not at odds, not fighting. This is where the new covenant is leading us. The Lord is asking us, do you perceive it? Are Are you ready for this kind of thing where the Lord will do this new work, bringing the people together as one? the psalmist in Psalm 133 talks about the beauty of that kind of unity. It says behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Get this image. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron who's a priest if you didn't know, running down on the collar of his robes. Just get this image of this anointing oil coming down on this priest in his beautiful colorful robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is what Jeremiah prophesies. This is what he says is coming. And in this period, the weary soul will be satisfied, it says. Every languishing soul that comes into this land, God promises to replenish. You can hear Christ's words ringing through in this call to those who are weary, heavy laden. What does he promise? I'll give you rest for your soul. Rest, replenishment, restoration. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what the new covenant is all about. Okay, And it says, and at this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is Jeremiah. He has this vision. He wakes up and he says, that, that was pleasant. Okay? Kind of this dream of refreshment. Well, of course it was. right? Isn't that the dream of every believer? Don't we all long for this kind of ministry? church take heart because jeremiah says behold the days are coming what will happen in those days keep reading the text i will sow the house of israel and the house of judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast It's a little bit of a peculiar line isn't it what's that mean well some cambridge commentators put it this way i will make the people and their cattle to prosper And multiply so fast that the offspring of both shall seem almost to spring from the ground after the manner of seed shown. Like This vision of a blessed time of God's people. It's beautiful, isn't it? The kind of imagery that we get. It's an image that I think captures the heart of the expression well from Jeremiah. It's saying that the land will be so rich and fertile that you could plant almost anything and it grows. And C.S. Lewis is The Magician's Nephew. Some of you have uh, read that before. The the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm sure that you've at least heard of it. But in this book, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis, has this beautiful scene at the creation of Narnia, where Aslan, who is the allegorical figure of God, is singing his creation into existence. It's it's mirroring Genesis where God speaks and the world comes into the the, the order that we now know it. And and C.S. Lewis writes where this this beautiful line is singing out and things are just coming into existence. And this divine creative expression, uh, anything could be planted and it grow, whether it be a person or a lamppost. Right? If you read the story, there's some funny things that kind of happen there and some things that allude down to the road where if you've seen The the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, some of you may have seen the movie, that lamppost is actually planted at the creation scene. It's this beautiful moment where you could put anything in the ground and it grow. Absolute fertility, absolute possibility of all kinds of things happening. And I think that this image of fertility and fruitfulness is important, uh, an important part of God's eschatological plan. That that, that is the plan for the end of things that we shouldn't just chalk up to poetic optimism. Because that's what we have a tendency to do, isn't it? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that that sounds great, but that's not literally what's going to happen. Well, the fact of the matter is, God says, I will do this, and we should take his word seriously. When God says he's going to do something, we should take that seriously. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass... It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Now, there wasn't any question in Jeremiah's mind as to whether or not the plucking up, the breaking down, the overthrowing, destroying, and bringing harm was literal or not. It happened. They were living in exile. They were experiencing this to the fullest. They knew what the exile of God was like. So also, just as true as that is, Jeremiah says, So also I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. So that's just as true as the other side is. Okay? So there's this sense in which the new covenant in Jesus redirects the downward trend of human flourishing from an all-time low of exile, of cumulative sinfulness, rampant idolatry, to an upwards movement of renewal. Okay? This is the traction that I keep speaking about that comes with new covenant ministry that we should expect we should be moving forward in our progress right that's the language that we should see that we see here building and planting they're not just a possibility now but they're expected as the new covenant comes Jesus or God says he's going to to look over them to watch over them to build and to plant declares the lord so what that means now is that no one can lean on their fathers as an excuse now saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, think about that poetic lament. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, so the fathers do this, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Dad eats a warhead candy and the kids start puckering even though they didn't eat anything. Right? That, that's kind of the image that I get when I see the sour grapes and dad eats something and the kids are kind of suffering for it. Now, now what does this mean? Um when we think about this, well, let me tell you what I think that it doesn't mean. This does not mean that generational curses are all automatically broken because Jesus has come. Okay, I've said before that I believe that. And I'm not saying that this text is saying that, uh, that all that's gone away with. It does not mean that covenantal degeneration is put to an end. In other words, your unfaithful patterns that you continue to uh, put forth in your families, that's not going to stop. That's going to keep growing and keep snowballing in your sin if you don't break it off. It does not mean that families will automatically self-heal. That's not what this text is saying. All of that remains true as it relates to covenant unfaithfulness. And it's a problem, right? Now, the difference, though, the difference between the old and the new covenant is the fixedness of that curse is now broken and powerless. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit now indwells every single believer, we now experience this same fertility in the garden of the soul that our land is promised, right? Where that possibility is really there, okay? The, the Lord is eager to free us from our sins, and he, he's doing this because he's already paid for them. Right? He's already made the provisions for it. He's put the fertile ground and soil there for you to do it. He's calling you just to do it. And in fact, it is Jesus who's even hunting down the languishing soul, calling the weary to himself to give him rest. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is what he wants for your families. This is what he wants for your communities. And he's offering it to you. Do you perceive it? Do you, are you ready for the new thing that God might be doing in Jesus Christ? Now what this means is that in the new covenant there is no more it is what it is. It is what it is. A saying that I'm regretfully sure that you've probably heard me say. It is what it is. I hate that I've said that before. Because that 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 saying says things are always going to be the way that they are now. That we can't break out of it. It is what it is means that we're stuck essentially. Okay? The, the promise of the new covenant is that you are not stuck in your or anyone else's past sins. That's not going to be your hang-up anymore. It may be true that you come from a long line of sinners, but as it turns out, we all do in various ways. They're just different kinds of sins. We often learn to just accept our unfortunate and even sometimes sinful contexts and disbelieve that it could be any other way. Well, that's just my family. That's just who we are. We are that kind of people. Right? We see this, especially in rural communities. That's who they are. That's who I am. That's who we are. We, we speak in this kind of fixed way where it's we, we see no possibility of change. It's, it's a loss of hope. It's a pessimistic way of looking at the world. Take, for example, how this covenant unfaithfulness can shackle families in unnecessary slavery. Now, this will be an overgeneralization, but I think that there's some truth to it. Take, for example, example, poor rural families learn the importance of sticking together through the hard times, right? But often fail in their herd instinct towards enabling each other to remain stuck in their impoverishment, right? Family's all we got, son. That's all we got. That's all we'll ever be. Just stick to your family. You can't break out of this. You're stuck. That's who we are. That's that's the way that people talk. On the other hand, rich city families may find themselves ensnared by the abundance of their own making, Okay, with their money, uh, a family blessed with financial wealth is often grappling with the impoverishment of compassion. They don't care. They do not care. Whether it be their family or their friends, money is what really matters. Their wealth, rather than fostering a spirit of generosity, may inadvertently lead to a sense of entitlement and detachment from the struggles of others. They don't care. It doesn't matter how hard of a time you're going to have. If it involves them having to give something up, they will not do it. Okay. These examples, they're, they're overgeneralizations, uh, but, but they're often taken for granted in our culture that that's just the way things are, that these two groups can never come together. They can't learn from one another. The rich will always be rich. The poor will always be poor. That's just the way that it is. What if they dwell together in unity? What if they learned from one another and broke out of the shackles that they've been in for so long? That is just the way that things are. Well, pe- That's what people say. But, but the reality is that you don't have to box yourself or others into this degenerative trap of saying that the children will always be like what the parents are. That's not who you have to be. So we might bring this ancient idiom up to date saying, no longer do we children have to say that our parents' decisions have left a bad taste in their mouth. That's something we actually hear pretty often. My parents did this and it really left a bad taste in my mouth you know what? I find myself doing the same thing every day. It doesn't have to be that way. Be it psychological abuse, financial greed, financial waste, marital infidelity, lack of boundaries, addictions, unresolved conflicts, or even grapes themselves. You don't have to live with that bad taste that your parents put in your mouth. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? The Lord has created a Do you perceive it? So we need an outlook renewal. But I want to push this newness even further and keep chasing the new through Scripture. So it's not just our our view on life that needs to be transformed. Not only do I want you to perceive the newness of outlook in a subjective sense, because that would be a subjective sense, like seeing it from a different angle, right? But I also want you to realize there is an objective reality to this newness that Jesus brings. Jesus actually changed things, not just changes the way that you look at things, but he changes things. Do you see the difference? But those aren't the same thing. There's a profound link that I hope that you all can connect through this series. Isaac has already hinted at it a couple weeks when he came and preached for us, and that is that this new covenant that we've talking about that we've been talking about is the divine order of the new heavens and the new earth which both were inaugurated in Jesus' day. Now, that's an extremely bold statement. If you didn't hear me clearly, I'll say it again. The new covenant is the divine order of the new heavens and the new earth, which both were inaugurated in Jesus' day. The new has come, not just will come. Now, there's more to be said about that. But the new heavens and the new earth, I want to tell you today, are here in a sense. Okay? That, for me, was what changed the trajectory of my spiritual labors. That's when traction started to make Uh, way in my life. That for me was the link that I very much needed to connect what I'm doing now to the kingdom of God, to to where I'm not just doing things, but I'm doing things for Christ in his kingdom. Because if you take seriously the newness of the new covenant, you realize that things really have and are changing post-Jesus, right? Things aren't the same as they were before Christ. They are new. Okay? Not just seem new. If you truly believe that you are new creations in Christ Jesus, this has a reformative and transformative effect on you. You won't ever be the same if you recognize this really. It makes you realize that you don't just have forgiveness of past sins, but you also now have a duty to build, to plant, to be a co laborer in Christ's kingdom now. Why on earth are you here, right? We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. You have a purpose in your life. You are called to be doing something, and that's not just believe in Jesus and sit back, right? God has a plan for you to actually make progress and do things in the world. You see, Isaiah seems to have the same vision of Jeremiah when he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Jeremiah talks about it, and he frames it in the, the terms of the new covenant but Isaiah talks about it in terms of the new heavens and the new earth. So if you would turn quickly with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Uh, as we're turning there, I want you uh, uh, to, to ask yourself these two questions. okay? Two questions that we really need to ask as we're turning to this passage in Isaiah 65. First, look for when this prophecy might take place. And I'm just going to warn you, this prophecy will blow your mind if you read it the right way. Look for when this prophecy might take place in Isaiah 65. And number two, look for what the person living in this period should be doing. Okay, So when is it happening, and what's going to be happening then, and what should the person living there, what, what should they be doing in Isaiah 65? We're going to look at verses 17 through 25. Not the whole chapter, but just the part that talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, Isaiah 65, verse 16 through 25 says this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Remember, this is the same language that Jeremiah uses of the new covenant. The former passed away, the new has come. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That sounds oddly familiar to last week, doesn't it? Weeping, lamentation, cries in Rama. Rachel weeping for her children. No more of that, it says. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Think of Herod killing the infants. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before, I call, they, are, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. When might this beautiful promise take place? Now, if you thought, well, in heaven, of course, allow me to put some probing questions to you about that idea of heaven. Let's look closely at Isaiah 65. If this is talking about the full, final culminated state of heaven, then why is there still death in verse 4 or verse 20? Okay? There's death there. The infant lives out his days unlike the infants that we spoke about last week, and the young man is only 100 years old when he dies, while the sinner 100 years old is living and cursing. And there's sinners there, did you notice that? So death is present in this state. Sin is not defeated because they're still sinners, and sin still remains the sting and curse of death to those sinners who are 100 years old. That sounds better than now, but not what I hope the final culminated state of heaven will be like. Amen? That's, I, I don't want death there to, to be in the final state. I don't want that at the end. I don't want sinners to be there. Further, did you notice that there are children being born in this passage? In verse 23, it says that they will not be born for calamity, but they are still procreating, right? I thought Jesus said that in the resurrection, they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage. The implication is is that they won't be having any more kids. So it seems that this is pre-resurrection. This is before Jesus returns, okay? So this answers our first question. When is this period? It's before the resurrection, but we must be honest about the fact that life doesn't quite look like that now, right? We haven't seen the the, the, the wolf and the lamb grazing together, so we're not there all, all the way, okay? People aren't living as long as it says there, okay? So, so how do we reconcile this biblically? Well, theologians have, uh, they, they, they've come up with this beautiful term that you'll probably use a lot now that you know about it called the already not yet. Have you heard this before? The already not yet period, where we're already experiencing the, the new covenant, the new heavens, the new earth, the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus says it's in your midst while it's not yet culminated, okay? Jesus still has work to do. He's putting every enemy under his feet. And what is the last enemy to be destroyed? Death, okay? So there's a period of already not yet culminated, already here, not yet finished. Jesus is still doing something in this already not yet period, and this is where we live, okay? I want to give this new lens to you so that you might be able to look at the world in this kind of way, where you realize that the new covenant already has come in Jesus, and that his kingdom is the new heavens and the new earth, where we proclaim his death until he comes to defeat death finally, in the end, right? There's still death that needs to be defeated. People are still dying. There's still sinners out here. Things still need to change. Now, newness is here in a much more real way than we often give credit to Jesus for. And I like framing it in that way. Like, think about that. We don't give Jesus enough credit for what he has done. The newness that he has brought into the created order. We are scared to say that we are living in the new heavens and the new earth. But what else could this world be after Christ, the new thing, entered? it? What else could it be, right? Of course this world is new after God himself entered it and resurrected from the dead. It could never be the same after that. Jesus rose from the dead, for goodness sake. Of course the world is new. I want you to see that with Christ came the new covenant, the new world as Jesus referred to it in Matthew 19, 28. And what this helps us see is that the soil of the new heavens and the new earth is already being tilled by us co-laborers in Christ Jesus who, who catch a glimpse of that vision that we are called to do something, to work for the kingdom. Those are the people that are working right now at the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, if you're, if you're like me, this is revolutionary to your thinking. This is what blew my mind and put me really on task for what God is calling me to do. And that's why I asked you to ask yourself what the person living in this period should be doing. Okay, We've already answered when it is, before the resurrection. But in Isaiah 65, the first half is telling us what God is doing, and the second half is telling us what the people living in this period should be doing. The first half, it says, uh, For behold, I create New heavens and new earth. So this is what God's doing. I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. That's what God's laboring in. That's the work of the Lord. But what about his people? What are they doing? They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Think traction in your life. Making real, real substantial progress where you can say, I worked on this and it worked out. And I'm actually able to eat the fruit of my labors and say, that worked. That was good. God did a work in my life, and that's changed me forever. It's going to change my family forever moving forward. Okay? This is what the Lord is telling us: the building and the planting. Okay? Is this not the same labor that Jeremiah says will happen in this new covenant? In Jeremiah 31, 28. I will watch over them to build and to plant. That's what God is doing. And He's what this is what He's calling us to do as well: to build and to plant. Okay? We've covered a lot of ground. For some of you, this is like, whoa, that, that was a lot. Okay. But, but let me just trace for you uh, what I've said so far in a condensed form as we kind of trace backwards the new uh, that we've been opening up. Okay. Jeremiah 31 gives us the prophet's dream of the Lord of a new day that comes where God's people will, ex- will experience intense blessing, okay, both spiritually in the replenishment of the soul and also physically in the way that the people and the animals would be fertile for reproduction. Okay. Real prosperity. That's the dream. In earlier verses, he contrasted this period with the former days of exile and slavery that we talked about last week. Okay? He says this is not like those days. This is different than that. But when he wakes from this pleasant sleep, he tells his people that the days are coming when God would reverse the downward trend of plucking up, breaking down, and overthrowing and destroying and bringing harm to something else. Okay? In this day, they would build and to plant in a way where their father's iniquity didn't prevent them from flourishing. Okay? There were no longer any more excuses for them uh, to, to where they could say, no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's no longer going to be an excuse, he says. So Jeremiah then identifies this as the new covenant. Then through new creation themes, I, I connected this for you to the new creations that we become in Christ Jesus, Right? and to the new world, which Jesus identifies for us as the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Interesting enough, the kingdom of heaven. Now finally, I connected this to the concept of the new heavens and the new earth, which many of you probably thought was all future, but if we look at it rightly, uh, this would be a mistake to say that it's the final culminated state because there's death there, right? There's children that are procreating, there's sinners there, so it can't be the final end. But I urge that this would be a a mistake to place it at the final culmination of all things. So so we can't say that it's that. It's the already-not-yet period where this is taking place. Rather, what I've been urging upon you is that with Jesus comes a significant newness. Now I want you to think about that line. With Jesus comes a significant newness, a real newness, substantial newness, a newness which really does change not just the outlook of the world, But even the world itself, once we internalize the vision of the kingdom of God, in a real sense, the world can be said to be born again in Christ Jesus. A quick glance at the ministry of Jesus tells us his new covenant ministry was anything but ordinary heavens and earth. Think about Jesus, his life, what he was doing. That was not ordinary heavens and earth. And not only Christ, but the apostolic ministry in Acts is nothing but a fertile soil of the miraculous. Amazing things. Happened in Acts. A groundwork that was clearly rich and ready for kingdom building, church planting, and anything but old hat. That's not what the new covenant looked like. It was nothing less than resurrection theology at play. People believing in the resurrection, perceiving the new thing springing forth, anticipating it, praying towards it, getting excited about it, and living it out, and it happened. Okay. So I asked church, when was the last time that you perceived the new thing that God was doing in Christ Jesus? for your own life, for your communities? When was the last time that you really felt the urge to build and to plant, as Jeremiah says will happen? God shall do this, to plant vineyards, to to eat their fruit, labor hard and long enjoy the work of your hands, where you're actually doing something that matters in your life, and you're able to look back on it when you're done and say, that was good, and that's going to last. That's not going away. Bear children to be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, not bearing them for calamity, where we're saying, well, we can't have kids in this kind of economy. We can't have kids in this country with this kind of government. When was the last time that you were really challenged by the Lord to live with that kind of optimism that says, I don't care what they are doing. I care what God is calling me to do, and that's going to be the thing that fuels me. That's going to be what propels me. In the kingdom labors that he has called me to. In light of the new thing that God does, we are called to build and plant in all kinds of new and creative ways. The Christians should be leading the way at creativity, right? We should be leading in newness, we should be the inventors. And historically, we were. Let's, let's just be honest about that. The Christians are the ones that have made the greatest leaps in science. They are the, the, the greatest inventors. They are the ones that give glory to God in the science that they are opening up. The perception of the new things should drive us to build culture, plant institutions that will long be enjoyed as we eat the fruit of our own labors. Think about the things that some of the Christians right now are recognizing that the government isn't going to be able to provide them, and they're building out these institutions for themselves. This is what we should be doing Building something for ourselves and for our kids that's going to last, where we're going to be able to enjoy the fruits of our own labors. And not only us, but our children who are bearing to be the offspring of the Lord. We're not stuck saying, well, we can't have kids now. We're going to have kids. We're going to build out what we want for them. And we're going to enjoy it. And their kids are going to enjoy it. And we're not going to bear children for calamity. We're going to bear children for gladness and rejoicing in the Lord, in His world, His world that He has created. Right? Let's not forget who owns all of this. It's God's. It's God's stuff. How long have you been telling yourself that these things are impossible because of the iniquity of our fathers? Can't do it in this country. Can't do it now. Look look where we used to be. been. Wasn't it great back then when our forefathers did this and that? How often do we speak that way where we're just hopeless saying, well, wouldn't it be great if we were like them? What hope is that for the future? How long have you uh, been uh, tried to find satisfaction in the small things, like finding the the false newness in like a Facebook notification, like we confessed earlier, right? That's the newness that I want. That's where I really find my joy. No. Why why are we settling for that? That's the kind of newness that our culture is creating, by the way. It's not substantial. It's not real. It's a a red dot that pops up with a little one on, on your phone's app where you perceive the newness, and you go to look at it, and that's not replenishment. That's not helping your weary soul. That's not giving you any kind of real joy. That's not satisfying you. Why are we settling for that? Why are we stuck there? How long have you wavered, O faithless daughter, taking your eyes off the new thing that God has done? How long? Church, let us pray earnestly. And I mean that. Let us pray earnestly that God open our eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. They're ready. Why are we lying to ourselves and believing everyone that's saying that they're not? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but labors are. Few Few people get it. Very few people understand and are awake to the thing that God is doing. They don't perceive it. I think it it takes a calling of the Lord to kind of wake us up and shake us, saying, do you perceive it? Do you really? I know you intellectually say you do, but do you really perceive the new thing that I'm calling you and your family to do? I don't think that many people do. And I I want village. I want my family. I want myself. I want to perceive it. I want to see this. I want to taste it. I want to experience it. And that's what I want for us here as a community uh, a Village. I want us to see it spiritually, physically, realizing that this isn't some just dream that Jeremiah had, but it's the reality that God calls us to. That's what he wants for us. It's our calling in Christ Jesus to be co-laborers with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as I I come to this text, this promise, I pray that you would help all of us in the room who are excited about it, that perceive it, that intellectually grant that it's there. I pray that we would take that and move even beyond that, that you would give us the fuel, the the, the spiritual um, energy to, to, to pass up just Granting it and to actually put it into action. Lord, we want faith with works. Faith without works is dead. And Lord, we want a lively faith, a resurrection faith. We want hope in this community. We want joy. We want to be able to to be able to offer something substantial to a dying world. Lord, we grant that there isn't much out there. It's a, it's a land that is weary and it's a desert. But your word says that that's the very place that you spring forth. In the wilderness, in the desert places, you spring forth. And Lord, I pray that we would, with hopeful anticipation, with joy in our hearts, be able to catch a glimpse of this beautiful vision of the new covenant. To make it our own, and that we might be your co laborers with you in your kingdom. That we might recognize that we are your labors. Let us not be, be those who don't see that the fields are white for the harvest. Number us, even among the few, who are able to see it have eyes for that kind of glorious vision that you call us to. We pray this in Christ's awesome and powerful name. Amen. Let us continue to worship uh, by standing and singing together, Revive Us Again. This is hymn number 20. Please stand with me as we sing together, Revive Us Again. may be seated. I'd like to ask our ushers to come forward as we give this morning cheerfully to the Lord of our tithes and offerings.